Equipping today's college students to make their four years count for eternity. This is the Campus Outreach Podcast. If you got your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Tonight we're talking about uh, the question, can I be a Christian and enjoy my sin? And it's a good question. It's a complex question. And so in order to really tackle that well, what I want to do is dive into a, a familiar passage with us and chew on it line by line for the first five verses or, or so. And so if you want to open up to Ephesians chapter 2, um, we will uh, read the first five verses and then we'll put our focus there. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to dive into verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Okay. Just pray for us one more time before we go any further. God, would you show us through this text the severity of our sin? Then also, Lord, I pray that you would show us your intervening mercy. Lord, would you give us a deeper understanding of our sin? Not just the concept of sin, but our sin. And then would you show us the glory of Jesus even more strongly yet? We pray it in his name. Amen. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2. For some of us, it might be a really familiar passage. Maybe it's the end of the passage Verses 8 and 9, it may be most is familiar to everyone in this room, but uh, it's a powerful little section of Scripture. And the reason why it's so powerful is that it goes straight to the point. And so a couple of weeks ago, Trent hit on this, bur- in, on this verse when he was talking about the new birth, what it means to be born again. And he helpfully reminded us in his talk that the, our spiritual problem is really severe. And he talked about... Uh, a deck in the back, I can't remember exactly the illustration, but it being rotten and you needed a, a whole new deck. Um, not just a spiritual boost or a tune-up, but a overhaul of the heart. And so, because Trent did a bunch of the legwork there a few weeks ago, what I want to actually do is pivot a little bit, spend some uh, a, a time in something really specific in verse 1. So, let's just read verse 1 of chapter 2 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So, what does it mean to be dead? Being dead in our trespasses and sins, it's not, it's not an action, it's a condition. It's not an action, it's a condition. And if that's true, then that means that sin runs a lot deeper than how we tend to think. And, and here's why it's the key for us. I think often we can think of sin as being external stuff that we do. And that's true in part, but it's only half the truth. Because you see, sin is not just a problem that's out here. It's a problem 
that is in here. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And Jesus says this in Matthew 15, that out of the heart come all the things of life. He says, uh, it should have it on the screen, for, for what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, thefts, false witness, and slander. So what Jesus is saying is that all of this wickedness stems from a rotten root, from the heart. So that's why Ephesians 2.1 says that we were wounded. Or it says that we were dead. It doesn't say that we were wounded. It says that we were dead. And this is really key for us, maybe even especially so at Sanford, because I think we can tend to think, look, I'm a pretty decent guy, pretty decent girl. Surely I make mistakes and all. But if you look at my life, I'm a pretty okay person. But I want you to think about this. If you were a combat medic serving in the military and you were on the field and you had 20 dead bodies on the battlefield, what could you do for those 20 bodies? And you think about this. Some of those might look worse than others. Some of those might be so severely damaged they're unrecognizable. Others, there might be no signs of real damage. might look like they're asleep. But you can do the same amount for both. Absolutely nothing. So in the end, it doesn't matter if you look okay. The detail of Ephesians 2.1 is that we're all dead apart from the grace of Christ. You can do zero to help if you're the combat medic. And why is that so key for us? Because I, I don't think most of us want to admit that we're rotten down to the core. We want to believe that there's some real goodness somewhere deep down in us. And we just have to uncover it. We might say, yeah, you know, I got some imperfections. I got some, some things going on. But if you get past that, I'm basically good. If you go, anybody been to the Smithsonian Museum in New York? Okay, maybe a couple. I see a couple head nods. Okay, so on the second floor of uh, Smithsonian, actually, no, National History, D.C., sorry. Um, I think the Smithsonian's in New York. Anyways, you have the world's largest flawless quartz sphere. And it's about the size of a basketball. So, on the sli- on slideshow. And it's perfect. I don't really understand exactly how this works, but it's perfect. There's no scratches. There's no discoloration. Uh, there's no blemishes whatsoever. And so, from time to time, you know, it's got to get polished and it's got to get clean because the external of that thing gets dust and it gets smudges because people want to touch it and all the different things. But if you wipe away all those smudges, underneath it's a perfect quartz. I think we think of ourselves the very same way. If you could wipe away the mud that's on the surface, if you could clean up that part, underneath there's a good core. We're in good shape. And Ephesians 2.1 says the exact opposite. And this is why Jesus says that in Matthew 18, about what comes out of the heart is the key to life. Maybe this will illustrate this a little bit differently. Uh, next slide for me, Trent. Uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment. In 1971, there was a professor named Philip Zimbardo, and he set up a, uh, a, an experiment. There weren't, weren't a whole lot of laws about this, and you'll see why in just a moment. But he set up this experiment where he had mock prisoners, uh, mock guards, and mock cells, and he wanted to set up what a, a makeshift sort of jail would look like in an experiment. And this was a sociological Experiment. And he wanted to see kind of how people would behave. And so there were really no rules to this thing except for you couldn't physically hit anybody. 
But these people are the guards. They got to make sure that these people stay in place. And after just, it was supposed to be a two-week study. And these people were getting paid a bunch of money to come and be a part of this two-week study. And they shut it down after six really bad days. Um, psychological torture, violence against other prisoners, the dehumanization of the prisoners by the guards. There were all sorts of crazy things that went down. You can watch a uh, movie about it. Um, but the study revealed sin seizing an opportunity in a moment. Here's one quote from one of the guys who was one of the guards. I think I have it on the screen. He said, I really thought I was incapable of this kind of behavior. I was really dismayed that I could act in a manner so absolutely unaccustomed to anything I would ever really dream of doing. And while I was doing it, I didn't feel any regret. I didn't feel any guilt. It was only afterwards, after I began to reflect on what I had done, that this began to dawn on me and that I realized that this was a part of me I hadn't really noticed before. So what's fascinating for us about the Stanford Prison Experiment is that deep down in the heart, we're capable of all sorts of evil because we're rotten at the inner person of the heart. And so here's how we apply this. If this is true, then the way we fight sin looks different. Because we don't just attack the fruit, we go after the root. We don't just settle for polished externals while sin wreaks havoc on an internal level. Instead, we fight sin from the inside out at a desire level, at a heart level. And so, I mean, we can often think, if I could just stop lying, if I could just stop gossiping, if I could just stop cheating on tests, if I could just, you know look past a couple of things that come across my Instagram feed, then I'd be clean. I'd be in good shape. And so oftentimes what we can do is we can try and fix up the smudges on the external. But when in reality, if Ephesians 2 is true, it's like putting band-aids on cancer cells. It, it won't do the job. And so we need to ask, what, what led me here? Not just, uh, not just don't gossip, I shouldn't do that, but how did I get here? What am I what am I looking for? And looking deep in the root at the heart and finding out what's going on at a heart level. Then, I want us to see the next thing from the second verse of Ephesians chapter 2. Sin uh, offends a person. So Ephesians 2, have it on the screen, says that we were following the prince of the power of the air. That's a fancy way Paul is describing for Satan. So, Get this, apart from Christ, we followed Satan. Well, we hear that, we think, well, that might be a stretch. Paul, seems like a little bit of an exaggeration. Maybe you're a little bit extreme, trying to make a point, I get it. But here's, here's the thing that this reminds us about sin. Sin is declaring war on the creator. It's not light stuff, it's, it's personal. Our sin is saying, my way is better than your way. I know what's best better than you know what's best. And here's the thing. I think we can often feel with sin like we are violating some arbitrary rule. Like we, like we got the wrong answer on a test. When in reality, sin is a direct action taken against a person, God himself. So maybe this will help you illustrate it. When I was in college... Um, I was driving on campus at the part 
of the front gate, the fancy front gate. You know what I'm talking about? And it was after hours. And so the gate is closed. And so I, uh, you didn't hear this from me, but I just ran through the stop sign because the gate was closed. So there's no oncoming traffic or anything like that. I just ran through the stop sign. So the blue lights come on and police officer gets out of the car, Sanford police officer, and he says, uh, hey, like, tell me one good reason why you just ran that stop sign. And I didn't know what to say. I said, what, are you serious? And he said, yes, I'm serious. I said, okay, well, with all respect, when the gate's closed, there's like very little reason for there to be a stop sign because there's no traffic. And he said, all right, son, have a good night. You're free to go. It was the most awkward and weird exchange I ever had with a Sanford police officer. Um, and here's the reason why it was so, it was so funny. Uh, there was a, it's a, there's a law and the, it's an arbitrary law and an arbitrary rule book. It didn't have any meaning. Him and I both, both knew in that moment that it was an arbitrary rule and an arbitrary book, right? Didn't have any real meaning. I'll give you another illustration. A number of years ago, uh, there was a student on a rainy night, midnight, his, him took his Jeep to the most sort of sacred grass of Sanford's campus, which is? Quad. Oh, actually, that would be a good point. Second most sacred grass of Sanford campus would front, be the quad. Front gate. Front gate, yeah. right? Takes his Jeep to a rainy Sanford front gate at midnight, does donuts for about 15 minutes. The front gate of Sanford in the rain. The next morning, the very first meeting the president had was with the guy who drove uh, his Jeep on the grass at the front gate. Why? It wasn't because he sinned against the grass. He sinned against a person, in a sense. Does that make sense? There's a difference between the arbitrary rule in the rule book and sinning against a person. And sin is not a technicality that we didn't get by on. It's a violation against a person. It's, a, it's crossing the line with our creator. And so when we remember that God's law, his instruction to violate God's law is to grieve God himself, that changes the equation for us because it's not violating an arbitrary rule in an arbitrary book. It's not running a Sanford stop sign after the gate is closed. I hope this isn't recorded. Uh, but if that's the case, then what does that do for us? That makes even little sin in our life a big grievance to us. Think about David. David, uh, in his kingship of all of Israel, he, there's a point where he sleeps with another man's wife, wife Bathsheba, and he has that man killed, and then he tries to cover it up. And in a sense... He's done all kinds of damage to all sorts of people across all of Israel. When he writes Psalm 51, he says what? He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now wait, what, what do you mean, David? How can you say against you and you alone have I sinned when all of these people have been affected? It's because he knows ultimately the one whom he's crossed is his creator. And so, you see, we forget the one that we sin against. The reason we think so little of our sin is because we think so little, oftentimes, of the holiness of God. 
The reason sin doesn't often seem like a big deal is because we have a woefully small view of the one we've sinned against. There's a story uh, that David Platt tells in a book about a Christian in the Middle East uh, named Azim, who was trying to share the gospel with his taxi driver in a Middle Eastern country. And so they're talking about hell, and they're talking about judgment, and they're talking about punishment, and the taxi driver says, look, I just think it's ridiculous that God would punish me for sin. I am really not that bad. And so Azim pauses, and he says, okay, well, imagine that I pound this, this car with my fist as hard as I can. What would happen? And he says, uh, the taxi driver says, well, I think it'd be a little strange. I'd wonder what you were doing, but not a whole lot would happen. He said, okay, what if I struck you as hard as I could? He said, I'd beat you up right here on the sidewalk. So, okay. What if I go and I strike a police officer? He says, you're going to spend a lot of time in jail. He says, okay, how about if I go to the king of this Arab country? I strike that guy. What happens then? And the taxi driver sort of paused. He says, well... You'd be put to death. I said, you see, my friend, the severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person who was sinned against. The severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the person who is sinned against. In other words, sin is not ultimately judged by how great or how small it is in our eyes, but by the greatness of the one who was trespassed, who was sinned against. And it's not that God is overly harsh. It's that God is infinitely more holy than we are. We might say, yeah, but I, I don't know about all that. Uh, if you look at my life again, it doesn't look all that bad. All this murder, slander, evil, wickedness stuff that Jesus is talking about, it's not really coming out of my life. It's pretty clean. And here's the thing. We all have this. We have a dangerous tendency to think that we are basically okay. And there's a way in which we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay. And, and here's what it looks like. We, we compare ourselves to the person beside us. So what we do is we say, well, I, I'm not partying as wildly as so-and-so. And that's got to count for something, right? There's that guy, and then there's me. And it's subtle, but it's a way we deceive ourselves into thinking that we're better than we really are. I have this friend who works with some athletes at, a, at another school. And he said one time he had this really, really bad dude that he was trying to share the gospel with. And this guy was leading a gang, physical violence, drug dealers, and, and, and the, uh, his dad owned strip clubs in Atlanta. So this guy's life ambition was to go run the strip clubs with Pop. When the staff friend of mine said, sat down with him to try to share the gospel with him and talk to him about these things, the guy said, look, man, I'm no Hitler. Everybody tries to compare themselves to someone else and say, I'm not really that bad. No matter how severe it gets, everyone looks to someone else in order to feel better, to look better, whether it's a sorority sister or a brutal dictator. And here's the thing. Until we really see our sin as a direct assault on the holiness and glory of God, we will trivialize it by comparing ourselves to others. Here's one of the ways we do this at Sanford. Uh, we're not as bold as the strip club guy. Ours is a little bit more polished. It's a little more theologically correct. You know what we say? We say, well, nobody's perfect. Well, that's technically true. Do you see what that does? It takes all of our sin and it flatlines it. It says, nobody's perfect. 
And it minimizes our sin to the point of it being irrelevant. Of course, uh, we say, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but we find ways to minimize our sin. And here's the bottom line. Trying to minimize and control sin in our life is like trying to push a beach ball underwater. At some point, it's coming back up, and it's coming back up with force. So, an application for this. What view of sin typically describes you? Small technicalities against a policy book or serious offenses against a person? Maybe another good application question. When you feel God convicting you, pressing on something in your life, how do you tend to run for cover? Maybe it would be even more specific to ask, to whom do you compare yourself to run for cover? How do you tend to press down the beach ball of sin when you should be confessing it and bringing it before the one you've sinned against? And maybe another good application question, what produces bigger grief in you? That your sin offended God or that it caused you problems in your life? It's entirely possible to sin in some pretty significant ways and to feel really, really, really bad about it, but not really repent. Because what can happen is that we're really bummed, we're really disappointed that it hurt our standing, our reputation, our future maybe even, some relationships, some friendships, a dating relationship, but not broken about that we grieved God whom we love. And so what tends to bother you most about your sin? In 2 Corinthians 7, if you wanted to look this up, it says that this is one of the things that separates the Christian from the non-Christian, is that the Christian is grieved over their sin because the one of whom they've offended, that's what grieves them. The non-Christian is grieved because it's an inconvenience to themselves and to others. So how do you, maybe in application, how do you tend to minimize your own sin? Next, Ephesians 2.3. Should have it on the screen. It says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, so here's the language of Ephesians 2 3. You notice it says, carrying out the desires of the body. The language here is of being governed by sin being trapped in our sin, being enslaved to our sin. In other words, Paul is saying we obey our desires because we are ruled by our desires. And what Ephesians 2 means is that sin's dominated us in such a way that we can't cut ourselves free from it. And this is why Jesus says in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is what? A slave to sin. What does Jesus mean? He means bondage. You're trapped in sin. You're trapped by choice. And what Jesus is saying is essentially this. Everyone who sins is an addict to sin. We're in such bondage to our sin that we can't get out. Apart from Christ giving us new life, we don't want to get out of it. We're in, enticed by it. We're enslaved to it. And we don't even know it. Next line. Breaking Bad is this... Uh, there you go. Um, all-time show. Uh, the story of Breaking Bad is about Walter White 
an ordinary science teacher who wants to make some money because of some cancer treatments he needs to pay for. And so he starts using his science knowledge to uh, make meth. And he has no interest in becoming an addict when he starts making meth, unlike his partner in crime. But as his business grows, his ego grows. And the power that the business gives him becomes all-consuming to him. And so soon, the show, uh, what becomes so obvious to everyone watching, is that even though he's never used meth himself, he's just as addicted as everyone else around him. He's just addicted to power and not meth. He's just enslaved to power and his ego and not meth. And it's a little picture of our own enslavement to sin. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, tells the story um, about a, a man who's um, basically like considering heaven. And there's this sort of place in which people are having conversations about going to heaven. And this man has this pet on his shoulder. It's a pet lizard. And this pet lizard is biting him and digging his, his nails deep into his skin, causing him to bleed. And then God's angels ask if they can kill the lizard, which is supposed to represent sin in this guy's life. And even though it's so clear that this pet is destroying him, he's bleeding, he's hurting, he's trying to control this lizard, even though it's so obvious that it's the death of him, he says, I, I, can, I can maintain it. I, I can manage it. I promise it's not going to act up again. It won't hurt me again. And so he promises that he can manage this, and he holds on to his sin and thereby chooses death, and he doesn't even know it. And that's what Ephesians 2 points out to us. Sin enslaves us. Through the deceptive lives of the evil one, sin captures our hearts and leads us away from God. So we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the, the desires of the body and mind. And so in Lewis's story, it's this man almost chooses hell as a result of being addicted and enslaved to a sin. And what John 3.19 says is essentially this, that sinners love their sin. Sinners love their sin. That's the picture that Lewis paints for us in The Great Divorce. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. But man does that which he most longs to do. His deepest desire, he obeys his deepest desire. So if I'm like, man, I really want to lose 20 pounds, but that Chick-fil-A milkshake sounds really good. Uh, I really want the Chick-fil-A milkshake. Might have this desire too, but this one is stronger, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's my experience in the drive-thru. But basically the point that Edwards is trying to make is that we do what we desire most strongly every time. And what we need most desperately is for God to change our desires away from sin and towards him. And the reason we're so enslaved to sin before Christ, as Ephesians 2 says, is that we were captured by it. And it's at this point that now we begin to be able to answer the question that we're asking tonight. Can I be a Christian and still enjoy sin? And the answer is no, because if you've entered into a saving relationship with Jesus you got new desires that you didn't have before. And so you might enjoy sin for a moment. Of course you will. But you have been united with Christ. You've been given his spirit. You, your desires at the very core of who you are have been changed. So you're not able to stay in it. 
you will, because of God's work in your heart, the deep recess of your soul, you'll repent, you'll reverse course. I think an illustration might help you. If you're standing at a campfire uh, and you fall into the campfire, it'll hurt, it'll burn, it'll have an effect on your body, but it won't kill you. But you stay in the campfire and it most assuredly will kill you, right? And so if you belong to Jesus and you stumble into the fire of sin, you have a God-given sense, if you've been united to Jesus, that this is not good. i got to get out of here. This is the death of me. And it will cause you to run back to Jesus and his grace and repentance. Maybe another illustration might help drive it home. So when I was a kid, um, I, and some of you have heard me say this before, I ate dog food as a kid uh, more commonly than, than, than not. Um, I don't know why. So I, I hated vegetables really bad, and I'm pretty sure that that's why I ran to the dog's bowl. But... Um, when my parents weren't looking, I would swipe some kibbles and bits from Skippy. He didn't need it. He was all right. But here's the thing. Eventually, my appetites began to change. I began to see that the food that was offered at this table was far superior than the food that was offered at that bowl. Does that make sense? And here's the thing. You didn't have to convince me after a certain point that I didn't need the dog bowl anymore. I wanted the Thanksgiving meal. Does that make sense? And here's a, it's a crazy illustration, but here's the point. The Christian does not say, man, I'm sitting at Jesus' table, but what I really want is on the floor over there. That would be the equivalent of 10-year-old Micah looking at the Thanksgiving meal and saying, I want what's at the dog's bowl. The Christian doesn't live like that because you know, if you're in Christ, you know a better table. You've eaten from a better table that has satisfied your soul and you don't want to go anywhere. You want to stay right there. And here's the thing that concerns me. I think we can live our Christian life saying, man, I, I know I'm here and I'm supposed to be here. This is a good place to be, but man, it looks really good over there. It looks really good over there. And it misses the feast that Jesus offers us. We miss that there is a better meal that he prepares for us. And so do you see why this is deeper than like going back to that quartz illustration, it's deeper than polishing the externals. That we, what we most need is a change that's at the deepest part of our soul. And so, as a result of sin, Ephesians 2.4 says that we were like, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, the, the stain of sin is too severe to be undone. And there's this scene in Shakespeare's Macbeth where Lady Macbeth is, is crushed under, under the curse of guilt in having committed murder. And so she looks at her hands and they are stained with blood and they smell like blood. They look like blood. And she tries to rub her hands together as hard as she can to try to get them out. She looks and she says, oh, damn spot. She can't get the stain out of her hands. And it's a picture of all mankind, as Ephesians 2.3 says. How do you get the spot out? And it's only by God's intervening mercy. We look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So how does the spot get removed? How do the desires get 
changed? How does sin get atoned for, dealt with fully and finally? It's almost as if Ephesians 2 is going to great pains to say it's only by God's intervening mercy that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. It's by his intervening mercy, the great love with which he loved us. Who's the one who acts in verse 4? It's God who intervenes. It highlights that he steps in. And this is where we begin to see full circle that at the cross, Jesus absorbed hell, the, the penalty due our sin, so that you and I could be set free. In order for us to be made alive, in other words, a substitute had to die. The wages of sin, as Romans 6.23 says, is death. Sin is that severe. The wages of sin is death. And so in order for you and I to be made alive, someone else had to die. It's the great exchange. And so because of Jesus' death, he takes our sin, our stained spot. And we, by resting our trust upon Jesus and his finished work, we receive his righteousness. It's a the great exchange. And until we really understand the gravity of sin, we won't fully appreciate the gravity of the cross. If you, Charles Spurgeon said it this way, if you have a small sin, you will have a small Savior. If you have great sin, you know that you will have a great Savior. So how serious is our sin? Look at the cross. It took the cross to deal with our sin. How committed is God to rescuing his people from their sin? Look at the cross. He gave it all for us. The justice of God, the mercy of God, meet at the cross. So here's what I'd, I'd want you to walk away with tonight. So if you're, if you're investigating your walk with God, you're trying to figure out where you are in your walk with God, tonight is not a detour. It's at the very heart of what it means to know and understand the gospel. So my, my prayer for you tonight is that you would see your need in light of God's mercy. You would see the depths of your sin and why it took a bloody Savior to deal with it. And if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, you've already made the great exchange that we talked about. Then here's what I don't want you to walk away without. It is easy for us to think conceptually about sin without thinking personally about sin. To think about the facts about sin, but to miss our sin. And Ephesians 2, I think, would press all of us to not just examine the concept of sin, but to examine our sin. And when we do, we will see with even greater clarity the glory and the mercy and the kindness of Jesus to intervene for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that because of the great love with which you loved us, you intervened, that you saw us in our hopelessness and rebellion against you, and you stepped in, that you atoned for our sins at the cross so that we might have freedom. Lord, I pray for each of us. Would you help us to see the way we are easily entangled by sin in our own life? And then would you set us free by the grace that's in Jesus? that we might live more fully pleasing to him 
and abandon uh, sin and its misery. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.